Welcome to Living a Better Life podcast with your host, Madeline Golick. This is a weekly podcast exploring a variety of topics on how you can live a better life, not just physically, but in all aspects of what it means to be human living in a modern world. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not replace professional or medical advice. This podcast is sponsored by Ecophysiotherapy, where their mission is to educate, empower, and rehabilitate you back to health. Without further ado, please enjoy the show. All right. Welcome back, everybody, to the show. I'm very excited for my guest today. We are going to be chatting about how to foster hope in light of persisting pain and uh, how we can better support um, those that are living with pain. So my guest today is Neil Pearson. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. So I start this question with all my guests, and I figure it'll help build us some context. Is tell us a little bit about you. Right. That's always a difficult topic. But uh, so me, I, uh, <clears throat> I live in uh, British Columbia, Canada, uh, grew up in Kingston, Ontario, went to Queen's University. I actually trained to be a, a phys ed teacher first. And then uh, while I was in phys ed, I, uh, you know, thinking of being a phys ed teacher and coach, um, uh, we had to take anatomy. And when we did, I realized I just absolutely loved that class and uh, kept on hanging around the anatomy lab to learn more about it and, and met people who were doing this thing called physical therapy, which I had actually never heard of before. And um, so uh, they, you know, they introduced me to this idea and I'm like, Hey, maybe I'd want to do that. So I started to explore it and, and, uh, Strangely enough, I actually uh, first applied to go into occupational therapy, um, and uh, but then ended up ended up in in physical therapy. So I graduated in physical therapy and phys ed in 1985, and then uh, worked in some hospital systems for a while, which I think was fantastic. I got to work in um, um, a neonatal intensive care units and with um, you know, uh, full term babies, but who were born with club feet or right neck and things like that. So quite a different experience. Um, and then also working in a, a adult trauma and neurological ICU. So seeing it like quite a vast number of uh, things like that. And it was great as a physical therapist at the beginning because um, I actually, you know, you're, you are in a team when you're working in those kinds of scenarios. And uh, it was really great to learn that team management and also, but also learn from all those other healthcare people who were already there, you know, to, to realize that there was all this great training that I had, but there's all so many pieces that, that, you know, even within, you know, at that time, a four-year physiotherapy program, there was still a lot to learn. Anyway, I did that for about five years. Then I was thinking, you know, I really, I love academia. I think I'm going to go back. And so I went back and did my master's. I did a research master's. And uh, during that time, decided that I didn't want to do my PhD because um, I loved seeing patients so much. And, and really, it was, you know, to do my PhD at that time would have been, would have been to have given that up. Anyway, so I went back into clinical practice and then really gravitated much more to working with people who have the pain that doesn't go away like pain normally does. And, and I wouldn't have said it this way at that time, but it's the, you know, most people, when we get injured, we just get better. We carry on, we get better. And then when we don't, we go seeking out some assistance. And so the reality is that most people go see their doctor and get some care or go see their physical therapist or whatever primary care person they see. Um, most people get better. But then there's this group of people who don't. And um, that group of people really intrigued me because a lot of the things that they were saying 
uh, about about the recovery and about how treatment was working and about you know about their pain didn't really match up with what I learned in school and that got me really curious and so really by I think it was 19 about 1997 I started to spend much more time and then finally changed jobs in 2000 and, and ended up working in a, a, a multidisciplinary pain management center and that was you know since then that's what I've done is work with people with complex chronic pain. Yeah, it's always interesting to see, you know, people's journeys to where they sort of end up and uh, how how different things inform us along the way where we think, oh, I'm going to go this way. And then the universe is like, no, actually, you're going to go this way. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's it's just, you know, it leads us to an amazing, uh, an amazing road. So that's really what I want to focus in on is um, really diving into the, you know, into that question of, you know, those who don't get better the way that we expect them and getting into the pain neuroscience. And I think before we can talk about building hope for individuals with persisting pain, I thought we would start, I would love to hear your definition or how you think about what pain is. Oh, gosh. Uh, well, the first thing that I would say is that um, we should stop trying to define pain. Um, and I just mean you and I, I mean like everybody. Uh, we're, um, we tend to do a really good job at defining things that we would call as nouns. Um, and uh, as one of my colleagues, Diane Jacobs, you know, she told me this years ago and I loved it. You know, just one of those things that made so much sense. Pain's a verb. Pain is a, a human experience. It's a process. And, and so we can describe it uh, pretty darn well. Um, um, and I, one of the things I always suggest, especially when I'm talking to doctors, is, you know, who's been trying to describe this the most? Well, it's poets and philosophers have been talking about pain and suffering for a long, long time. And maybe within medicine, we need to pay more attention at, at those more broad views, right? So we can see this really is a human thing we're talking about, not just a medical thing. So if I were just to describe pain, I'd have to say that the best way for us to understand pain is to look at it from multiple points of view. Um, that I think that's where we really need to start. And, and we, all, we all know this, that you know, pain's complex, right? It's not as simple as damage your body, get more pain. Like a paper cut tells us the amount of damage to the body doesn't tell you how much pain there is. So we know there's some complexity to it. We know pain is uh, an experience. Um, so we need to be able to see it that way, which automatically means if something's an experience, past experience will change your experience today, and so will predictions of future experience. I right, saw so you back to the complexity of that. We know that pain has to do with protection. So some people would, would very definitively say that pain is one of the protective mechanisms of the human. Um, I would pretty much agree with that idea. Um, what else is pain? pain? There is an aspect of pain that is a medical condition. There's an aspect of pain that has to do with what's going on in the body. There's an aspect of pain that has to do with uh, what's happened through our life, through genetics. I mean, there's really great research now showing that um, that a sensitized nervous system or, or a system that's, that's sort of set up to be sensitized from an injury um, can actually be passed, at least in, in mice, can be passed from one generation to the next. Um, so, and then that seems to be something we see in humans as well. That seems to be, it's something that we see in humans. We think that that's probably the same thing. So it's gone. 
Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, I, 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 it's interesting that you bring that, that it be passed down, because if we think of the biopsychosocial model, we think about social and, um, you know, personal factors and belief systems. And if you're an individual who is experiencing persisting pain, the way that you behave, the way you speak about pain, the way you think about pain, um, I would think has an impact on how your children Right. would think about and experience pain. Um, you know, we, we know there's transgenerational trauma gets passed down. So why wouldn't pain mm-hmm. be as yeah. similar? And if, it could, it, if it's passed through mice, from one, if a primed nervous system, a nervous system that's primed to become hypersensitive to an uh, injury is passed down through generations of mice, you can see that you've sort of taken a little bit of the nurture out of it. It's more about nature. When we talk about it in humans, it could be the nurture, the, the, the parents and the community's uh, uh, behavior could be priming the system as well. But I mean, and regardless of which one it is, the point is that um, it's got all these complexities to it. And um, most of us, part of, part of the issue that we have is that most of us, and I don't just mean people in pain, I mean all of us, whether you're a medical practitioner or philosopher, whoever you are, we have gone through life not thinking about what we think about pain. So we have thoughts about them, about pain, right? We all think about pain, but we don't really sit back and think, does that make sense? Like, does that thought I have about pain actually match up with my experiences through life? You know, I mean, it just, this is a cool example, right? Is we've all seen cartoons in which the cartoon character drops a cartoon anvil on their cartoon foot. They pull their foot out and the foot sort of blows up. And we all sort of, you know, it's sort of funny and we sort of laugh about it, but most of the time we haven't really thought of, yeah, you know, when we have uh, an acute injury and there is that acute pain, we often actually feel that kind of a distortion of sense of self, right? Like we even see it and we still don't think about it. It's it's very interesting uh, that you bring up that point around, do we really think about are thinking about pain, um, which kind of ties really nicely into my next question, which is about, you know, in your practice, um, you know, what are some of the common beliefs that you see people holding about pain? Right. And, and I, I, I just want to uh, make sure we, we focused on the idea that I love, love the question is you said people. Because uh, it's not just the person in pain that has the beliefs about pain. It's, again, it's all of us. And that is part of the issue that we have is, is that we're, you know, in terms of reconceptualizing pain or thinking about pain in a new way, it's not just uh, people in pain who need that. It's the healthcare system still needs that as well, which we're working on. Uh, you know, there's a bunch of them. I think the, the one that nearly everyone focuses on is the idea that pain equals damage. I mean, when you talk to, you know, most people were the, 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 the misconceptions, the idea that, that the amount of pain that you're having matches up with the damage. And then you can stick it, take a step further. One of the misconceptions is where the pain is, is an accurate indication of what, where the problem is in the body and what the pain feels like is also an accurate indication of what, uh, what's going on in the body. Uh, and we know they, there are times when they are, uh, but there's actually probably more times when the location, the intensity, and the quality of pain are not accurate as to what's actually going on in the body, which is a weird thing because uh, if, it your, if it's your skin, it's pretty accurate, right? You can pretty much accurately say what happened to my skin, where is it in my body, but when it's anything that happens underneath your skin, you don't have quite that capacity. 
So we've got the misconception of pain equals damage, uh, which is unfortunate because if you move and you get increased pain and then you, and the thought is, well, I'm damaging myself, then you're going to stop moving, which unfortunately doesn't help your body get better. Right. And we need to figure that out, which sort of ties into, that's not so much a misconception, but it's, what I would say is the most commonly unanswered question for a person who has persistent pain is how much pain is okay when I move or when I exercise, right? Or, or how do I know when to stop? Uh, it's amazing that we actually, this isn't a, like one of the basic things that we are told in the healthcare world, in the physiotherapy world, the patient needs to know this, right? Even though the patient doesn't, has, doesn't know and what the patient will have done or the person in pain will have done most of the time is to use the pain as their guide. And, uh, you know, if we go back to most people get injured, most people get better, that, that process usually works. But when pain doesn't go away, like we normally expect it to, or like it normally does, then the idea of using your pain as your guide usually doesn't work anymore. Uh, nor does ignoring the pain, unfortunately. Um, there's one other one other misconception that I want to mention. We could go for days on. I'm I'm sure we could. I'm sure we could. If you veer too far, I'll just I'll 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 I'll, I'll wing it back, and you know it'll just be like part two. You know. <laughs> okay, so I think this this other one I think is important. It's the idea that pain is immutable. Now, I can I think I can pretty much guarantee you that people aren't aren't walking around thinking pain is immutable. But the idea is that. Um, we often have this unconsidered belief or concept that you can't change pain. Uh, maybe you can change your perception of pain, but you can't change the pain itself. And I think that's, that's problematic. If, if, if we are providing the person, especially with a self-care technique, and our, our understanding of human physiology and, and the science of, of, of humans, um, and I don't just mean the body, I mean the, all the biopsychosocial, like all that stuff. If we understand that, we, we realize that pain is something that is changeable. But to the person in front of us, if we're suggesting to them to do, say, this breathing technique or this, this, this movement technique as a way to change the pain, and the person's you know, underlying thought is, well, you can't change pain, right? You know, you know, it's like the, the person you know, the person in front of me has got rose-colored glasses or they really don't understand. Yet we actually do know because there's lots of people who've been able to do it. It's not just a science thing. It's not just a physical therapy or healthcare thing. Is that a lot of people have told us, yes, I have been able to change my pain. Not just the way I think about it, not just ignore it, distract myself. I've actually been able to change it. So we know it's possible from human experience and science backs that up. But this is an issue that when we are providing people with techniques, um, and if our language uh, is that we can change pain, we may and, and we may not realize the person in front of us is thinking, "No, you really can't." Right. Well, that's and that's a very interesting concept that you've brought up, um, and I think I'm going to tie it into one of the things that you you know you've done for me just in a 15 20 minute conversation. And this is why I love doing this podcast because I get to see and hear different perspectives that you know for me right I'm making those neural connections. And so you had you know we were talking about the dims and sims, and I'll I'll, I'll loop back to that in a moment. 
and which is an which is an exercise that I was mentioning to you that like has really helped me in my clinical practice. And then you had sort of made a, a comment about um, how that the so dims being danger, sims being safety, and how are the two actually equal? Mm-hmm. And you mentioned polyvagal theory. So of course, me being the person who likes research a lot, um, and I would probably be a perpetual student if I had the time and money to do it. Um, so I went in and I started researching it. And I wonder if the, you know, one of the blocks um, from a polyvagal theory is if we are in fight or flight, or if we are in dissociation or immobilization, um, we may have all the best advice to give to an individual, but in polyvagal theory, you know, the social engagement system may not be activated and they might not necessarily hear what we're trying to, uh, uh, trying to say. So I wonder, mm. you know, they have the belief that pain is not changeable. And I think coupled with feeling unsafe, right? So that sense mm. of, I don't have safety in my body may be the reason that they feel they can't change. And anytime they try to do something because their nervous system, their physiology isn't ready to, to take on the task. I wonder if that's why maybe they don't see the change because we haven't created enough mm-hmm. sense of safety so that their social engagement and higher cortical areas could kick on and they could be like, Oh, actually you bring up some really interesting points on why pain is changeable. I wonder. Right. And I got to say that I really appreciate that you're attributing the, the block, it may not be the right word, but let's just use it, right? Um, that that might actually, that you're attributing that to physiology. Because a lot of times when people are discussing what you just discussed, they will attribute the person not being able to move forward because of psychology. And, and it, I think it's really important to realize that, you know, when we talk about physiology, physiology is inclusive. The things that you were talking about physiology are inclusive of what's happening in the body and what's happening in the mind. Uh, whereas often when we start to use the language of psychology, we miss the fact that the body's physiology is a really big part of this. And that's actually, I, I would say, one of the really awesome things about um, Stephen Porges' work in the polyvagal theory, right, um, is that, is that it, it uses that kind of language. So for the people listening, just want to point out is that uh, Stephen Porges will make it very clear that he is, his research, you know, over 35 years of research, has been primarily with people with autism and PTSD. And so uh, the ability, our, our ability to transpose what he's found into the area of persistent pain, we need to realize we're still in the theoretical realm. Uh, it has a lot of face validity. It makes a lot of sense. And um, if, I don't know if anyone here's ever tried, but if you, if you uh, explain sort of persistent musculoskeletal pain from a physiological point of view to people who work in post-traumatic stress, they'll pretty much have this sense that, well, you've just stolen everything that we think and just applied it to the human body. Um, And and I've actually had had a couple of psychologists uh, uh, sort of jokingly accuse me of that one time. They realized just as, as I had realized early on when, when, uh, you know, early on, I was talking about pain to people, and a couple of people came up to me. Does this apply to emotional pain, or is it just physical pain? Um, and being the physical therapist I was, at first, I had no real good answer. I think my jaw just hung open as I was like, I don't know. Um, but uh, now we would say that that there's similarities. So, 
coming back to what you said about safety, I think is really, really key, is that um, the work that Porges has done, my interpretation of it in the way that some other people have interpreted it is that um, the evidence of safety might have more power in this individual in front of us than the evidence of danger. I don't know if it's everybody, but it seems to be a more common thread is that um, as much as we want to decrease the evidence of danger, uh, it's important to recognize that it's pretty hard to do that, like to get rid of all danger. And, you know, the, our, our systems are actually, you know, set up to keep us safe. So they're always looking for potential danger, right? Like the, the protective mechanisms in our body are actually a sort of weird idea, but they're always hyper alert for danger. So that's always happening. So we can sort of decrease some of those danger things, but maybe what's important, more important is to increase the evidence of safety. And if I take it a step further, and, and I'm not so sure that Porges said this, but my clinical practice has, has shown that um, when people are able to start to find calmness in their breath and find a way to reconnect with the subtle non-pain sensations of their body and learn how to release the gripping of the body, that it seems to be a wildly powerful thing for a lot of people to be able to uh, get that. And if you know, you mentioned about social engagement, what's really fascinating is that I, the more ever since I read Porges, the more I realized there are some people I'm working with who will not be able to find that safety in the in the body through breath and body tension and awareness um, on their own. Uh, and and this is problematic because we are teaching self care. And we have this idea that self-care is a lonely endeavor, that all I need to do is, it's, it's like the fish story, right? I just need to teach you how to fish and you'll be able to do it. Well, there are some of the people that we work with who we will be able to provide them with the self-care techniques and the personal get it. They'll know how to move better. They'll know how to calm things down and they'll improve. But there's some people who will come back and say this, you know, I try this at home and it doesn't work as well as when I'm with you. And one of the things I think we miss is that um, you know, because sometimes we feel like the person's just trying to flatter us or, you know, we sort of wonder what's going on with the relationship. You know, we got to keep this professional thing. Uh, but we've missed the idea that um, our calmness, our, our ability to uh, regulate ourselves, can be something that can be beneficial to the person in front of us. It's a, it's a beginning area of research around autonomic synchrony about how your autonomic nervous system can sync up to my autonomic nervous system. Um, and the social engagement stuff of what Borges would say is just two people together in some sort of, with some sort of caring relationship, right? The, the social engagement theory would probably suggest that the more uh, trust and the more compassion between the two uh, and possibly the more people that it actually may work better, which, um, I feel like I'm sort of going all over the place, but it sort of leads me to the last part I want to make in this is, is the idea of within, within pain management, uh, we absolutely need to provide people with individualized care. But that doesn't have to be lonely. It doesn't have to be alone. And there are some people we work with who I truly believe uh, in this lifetime may never be able to calm their physiology down well, be able to feel that sense of safety well enough to get stuff calm that they need to, uh, to change the pain while they're by themselves. That person may need to do the work with another group of people or at least one other person. And we, we've sort of missed that in the individualized care part. It's so 
again, it's just so interesting, and I'm just going to kind of tack off of this, because you're saying safety in individuals. And what I found really fascinating in Porges' theory, um, especially relating to the social engagement system, is that you can co-regulate, some people can co-regulate with others, while other people co-regulate better with objects, mm-hmm. right? So some people are much better at doing that self-care piece. You give them something, they take it, they can use it, it, it works for them, they feel confident, whereas on the flip side, you know, others need to co-regulate with, uh, and it's interesting that you bring that up because I'll have clients say, well, I just can't seem to do it the way that you do it and it'll feel the same way. Um, and maybe, and, and so that kind of now helps me understand, oh, okay, I wonder if this person, you know, needs a, a slightly different care plan that involves more in social engagement in order to, you know, help them meet their, meet their goals. And so kind of looping back, um, talking about the Dims and Sims. Now, of course, you know, Lorimer uh, Mosley and David Butler. Um, so the, 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 the Dims and Sims is, some, is an activity that they come up, came up with. And, and I think it can still be useful, but understanding, uh, and, and for me, when I'm going to use it, I want to focus in on that safety piece. How can we generate more sense of safety, recognizing these are some of your dangers and some of some of the things that are going on in your environment, right? That biopsychosocial piece to help them understand that those may have an impact on their pain, obviously, wherever they can minimize those things. But if you can't, sometimes I'll say, okay, well, if you can't not interact with this person who stresses you out, you know, maybe we can do a breathing technique or a movement technique to calm your physiology, right? To create that sense of safety in that reaction. Um, but I was just, I, I was wondering if you had any additional commentary on either the Dims and Sims model or maybe um, your differing view of pain or is there a different view of pain that you have compared to David and Lorimer? Hmm. Interesting. Uh Let's start with the dim sim thing first. Uh, I truly believe that anytime we look at a model related to either pain or pain care, right? So this is a model that has to do with pain care, not, well, you could say it's a, it's, it's a model that has to do with pain, right? Is that how much pain we have and what the pain is like um, it has to do with uh, the evidence of danger and the evidence of safety. Right, so you could you could find some attribution of causality if you wanted to, although we always have to be careful. Realize that you know pain is multifaceted; it's caused by a whole bunch of stuff integrated together. Um, and as soon as we start making lists like that, we tend to start to um, uh, decide that you know that's the one that's really important, and which is perfectly fine to do as long as we hold our mind open to is that seems to be the one that's important now, and pain's a moving target, and it's possibly going to change. Right, that we may need to go in a different portal later on. So I think we really want to do that with any model. And one of the things that, that I see happen whenever anybody comes up with something new and sort of good like this that simplifies it is that there are times when clinicians will grab onto that model as if the mo- without the understanding that the model is incomplete. It's not intended to be an incomplete model. It's intended to be a piece that you can use to try to understand part of this human's experience in front of us. And yet we'll start to talk, we'll start to hear people talking about that as if it explains everything. 
you know, so whenever anybody talks about pain, a person brings it back to dims and sims as soon as they realize, no, we got to go beyond that, right? Because it's more complex than that. Um, you know, it, it's like the, that we've learned through the last 10 or 15 years and a lot through David Lormer's work about the importance of the brain, like the mechanisms of the brain. Um, and, and, but once again, you see is that some people, whenever they talk about the about pain, they're, all, they're so brain centric that you realize the person really doesn't understand the, the human existence stuff around it. So I really like the model. What I would say is it's a great place to start and then to understand it is incomplete. And I would say also look at it in reference to what Porges is saying, um, at least in the idea that this individual in front of you, that there may be differences uh, in the, uh, the importance of evidence of safety uh, versus the importance of evidence of danger. And as you said, the ability to uh, internally create a sense of safety, even when you know that danger exists. Because that's a big part of helping people to move with more ease, is at some point we're going to be asking the person to move to a place where there is increase in pain, which is um, evidence of danger. And so maybe I can tell you, hey, you know, it's not so dangerous. And you might say, yeah, but still feels dangerous, right? So there's the evidence of danger there. So now my job is to see how much I can get you to increase the evidence of safety while you approach that. Um, and one of the, 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 the sort of foundational place, the place to start, not the complete place you would go, but the place to start, are these movement guidelines that we came up with uh, from listening to patients of, of uh, people sort of going to that edge and saying, um, does, it, does my body feel safe here? Do I think I'll be okay later? Uh, can I calm my breath? Can I calm my uh, body tension? And can I actually pay some attention to pain? To impart all of these things, well, in part, they're to pay attention to four alarm systems instead of one. But in part, these things are to uh, increase the, the, the evidence of safety, right? If, if you can keep your breath calm, if you can keep your body calm, if you can still actually pay some attention to pain, uh, you're in a place where you could actually feel somewhat safe. Thank you, you for me, that. Go yeah, ahead. You asked me the other question was, uh, are there differences? You know, um, I don't know because our beliefs are always evolving. Um, as you asked that, I was reminded of there was, there was a time uh, when we were in Dublin for the an, uh, International Association for Study of Pain, and I was actually uh, outside on the sidewalk arguing with Lormer about body awareness. Um, we're supposed to be going in for pizza and beer after the presentations that day. Um, so, you know, we, we had a different view at that point. My view was that we needed to pay more attention to distortions of body awareness. And his view at the point was that it was going to be really, really hard to do. Um, there's lots of people studying this now. So, and, and you know, this, this is how we evolve by sharing ideas. Um, and I know one, I haven't talked to Lorimer about in, in uh, uh, I guess, about three years now. But I know we definitely had a different opinion about the, uh, the usefulness of distraction. Um, so uh, to me, distraction is a technique that's really great uh, for immediacy uh, to temporarily change things. We're, we're, distraction doesn't seem to create lasting change in our physiology. Um, and uh, I know I, I, we tried to talk about it a whole lot. Um, I know that within the, the explained pain, it's, it's sort of put in there as a, um, uh, as a technique and, and sort of my view um, and I can't tell you which is the right view because I don't have evidence around it. Um, my view is is to use distraction 
when you need to take a break from the pain, when, you know, that immediacy thing. Um, yet if we're going to try to create neuroplastic change or lasting change in physiology, um, we need to, usually need to use different techniques. And so sometimes what people, um, and I don't know about Lauren and David with this one, but I know that in the virtual reality world, because virtual reality is something that can really help with people with pain, some of the researchers are looking at immersed virtual reality as a distraction, just to give the person a break for a while in this, you know, to get away from the pain because you really get immersed in it. Um, <clears throat> yet other researchers are looking at it as a way to um, change predictive coding or to, um, to actually create neuroplastic change by repeatedly going through this um, virtual reality scenario. It'll be interesting to see where that research goes. And I think this is, this is, you know, why I have, why I enjoy so much having conversations from different perspectives is, well, this is, it's healthy for us to ask these questions, to disagree, because that's what drives the research, right? That's what drives the thinking. It's like, huh, he said that. I don't know if I agree with that. Okay, what does that mean? Let me see what, you know, what he sees from his perspective, right? Um, that, you know, allows us to grow and uh, as clinicians, as researchers, um, and as a profession. You've brought up some, you know, interesting kind of ways that you you approach or you think about pain and and um helping people find that safety within their body i guess my next question would be what are what are some ways techniques or approaches you take to help um your clients to show them the inconsistencies with their beliefs about pain. So if they believe pain can't be changed if they believe you know the things we discussed I, I, I'd love to hear how you sort of approach mm -hmm. your pain care or your pain strategy. I guess the, the first thing that I would say is that <clears throat> you mentioned about inconsistencies so that, that often we, we've missed the idea that the way we think about pain is, is not consistent with our experiences. And so <clears throat> what we're actually trying to do here is provide a person with an experience that's inconsistent with their previous determination of safety or danger or the pain. Um, if I could get you, if you could move your neck 30 degrees before the pain gets worse, and then uh, we, I'm just going to say anything right now. If I could get you to do something that at the end of it, you could move your neck with further ease, that's um, an experience that the pain is changeable, right? Which could be inconsistent with your view that pain is immutable. Um, but it's also potentially inconsistent with the idea that you have some efficacy, that you have some capacity to change this as well, right? If it was something that I got you to do. Uh, if I put my hands on your neck, right? So you only have three degrees of movement before the pain gets worse. If I do manual therapy to your neck and at the end of it, you can move with more ease. Um, unfortunately, what's probably going to happen is you're probably going to attribute the change to some sort of big expertise that I have. Um, and my, uh, what I would say to you at that point is, that's fantastic, your pain changed, because that's really the experience that just happened here, right? The, the person has, has had a pain that's hard to change, and it just changed. So we need to reinforce that. Look, your pain actually is changeable. And that's the kind of thing that we need to hear so many times, because it feels so solid. It's so, sorry, it's so weird. Pain is this moving target. You know it changes all the time, yet it feels so solid and real like it can't be changed or like you can't do it. Um, anyway, so I would say, that's amazing your pain changed. And I would say something like, let's look for all the other things will change it too. 
which would hopefully address the idea. Another misconception is that you know it's just I'm the only one that can change this. Um, so it's experience. I think if I use that word as like how do you do this, you provide people with experience, and I think we can provide people with experience through story. Um, through metaphor, I think we can uh, provide people experience uh, through a physical, actual, you know, physical experience, getting the person to do something. Um, so there's sort of those, um, we could, uh, there are people who won't like this language, but we can take it into, we can move it into the more uh, intellectual based, right? And then the more cognitive experience like story Right? And then we could move it into the more embodied experience. And just for anyone listening, just want to make sure you know, you can't change the body without changing the mind. You can't change the mind without changing the body. So, but, but I'm just breaking it up like this to, to consider this. Because there are people we work with that we can provide them with the way the physiology of the body actually works. Talk to the person about the way the physiology of the body works. And the person goes, oh, I didn't know that. And it changes, it, now their experience is different because now they, they just the knowledge is enough to change. Um, but for a lot of us, when we, if I believe this and you come along and you tell me this is the way, it, no, this is the way it works, um, because this is actually just not a thought, it's a belief, right? Is that you just told me that what I believe is wrong and that naturally sets up resistance in us. And so what we need to do or what we need to consider as another option is to give people an experience um, that doesn't fire off the resistance so much. And uh, for anyone here who's heard Lorimer and David, their their painful yarns, or some of the painful yarns that I do and other people do, that's part of the idea. If I can tell you a story about pain that makes sense to you, but is inconsistent with your belief about pain, then you don't have that same uh, fiery cognitive dissonance. Right. It's not, you know, I told you, you said this and I told you this and they're banging against each other now. Uh, it's um, it, it allows us an opportunity to say, yes, that makes sense. But that is different from what I, you know, what I have thought about this pain. And so story is really, really powerful and not just the story that we provide people. It's part of the reason why support groups can be really, really helpful. Uh, you know, facilitate in a great way. They can let people share stories so people go, I never thought of it that way, but that makes sense. And that, that you know, that's not what I was thinking, but that person used that and it got better, right? So you sort of go through that. And then the other experiences are really, I think the biggest thing we want to do is give that person the, the experience that it's true from behavior or from what happens in their physical self. Um, and so if we can give a person an experience that they can, they can move in a certain way, and as a result of moving that way, move with more ease in the end. Um, that that experience can be really one of the most powerful ones, because and it's it's fascinating, right? Is that sometimes someone comes along and tells you something, and you're like, oh, that makes sense, but you don't really know if it's really true for you. And it's like somehow you need to you need to try something for yourself, and when you try that information out related to what you do. And, and you know, sort of your life, and it it works. Then it's like ah, right. It's 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 like it's more true. And I love that David and Lormer talk about deeper learning. Excuse me. And I really really think that a lot of deeper learning comes from the more embodied experience with the physical experience than uh, from the thinking, just the thinking intellectual side of it. 
So I shouldn't say just the thinking because it's not just. Uh, I know it's complex trying to find the words and the way to like describe it. I find, you know, I find myself like running in loops in my head and I'm like, okay, it's this and then it's this. And so I I totally (laughs) get it. Yeah, we can't get the language right all the time. I think that's part of the thing, right? Is that sometimes we try to explain something and we're not using language that uh, makes sense from the person in front of us worldview. It's like the idea of, of telling a person that they should, I mean, it, sorry, uh, this scenario. So I've got back pain. I, I go into the doctor. I tell the doctor all the things that hurt. All the, you know, it hurts when I move this way and it hurts when I do this with my body. And at the end of the session, the doctor says, well, you really need to exercise. And he's sort of like, well, this makes no sense. And I don't mean to be picking on doctors. It can happen with any healthcare person, right? The person's view is that the reason I came to you is because movement hurts. And now you're telling me to do the thing that I came to you about. Right? It, it just it doesn't fit with the worldview. And, and I think that's important that we also understand in terms of experience uh, is that a repetition is valuable like crazy. Is that we need as individuals, if if I believe this and you come along and you tell me something here that's different from this, but it makes sense. It's not like this immediately changes most of the time. Sometimes it does, but most of the times it's still this thought that makes sense, but you don't know how to incorporate it into your worldview. And so you're holding it as separate, but with repeated experiences that that new concept makes sense is it starts to integrate with your greater worldview. And so it starts to affect more things. And, and once again, I think that comes back to this idea of the deeper learning is that deeper learning does require for most of us repetition of the same experience. And over time, that repetition leads us to see self and world as, as different. Um, can I say one other thing about Porges theory that's really important? Yeah, absolutely. And I say this, one of the things I didn't mention to people, you know, they may not know that I'm a yoga guy, a yoga teacher, yoga therapist. I teach a lot of yoga therapy programs about the integration of pain into yoga. Um, and one of the really fascinating things about uh, Porges' uh, work is the idea of the importance of vocalizations in the face. Um, and to me, when I was reading it, I was like, this is fantastic. Because, you know, within yoga class, you hear people say things like soften your tongue or soften your ears or soften your eyes, right? And, and Porges' work has given us pretty good evidence that um, the muscular activity around the face is highly important for evidence of safety. That when we are gripping around the orifices around the face or anywhere in the body, that the, uh, our systems are being provided with information that says um, there is danger here. And yet when we, when we can soften around our tongue and our throat and our ears and our eyes um, and even the anus, and the, these sorts of things will actually, uh, it seems to be something that, that changes the way the vagus nerve is working and changes the fight flight. Um, and, I, and I love that sort of, you know, I thought of it because of experience, right? The yogis didn't figure that out through science. The yogis figured that out through experience. Um, and, and I think that's, that's part of, um, you know, it's part of the reason why I would hope anyone in the healthcare world who's working with people who have ongoing pain uh, take up a contemplative practice of some sort because your experience of, being, uh, of what it's like to do these things will start to show you more, more about this idea of evidence of safety and danger and 
more evidence about social engagement, more evidence about self-regulation. And, and the more, more we kind of we experience it in self, the more convincing we will be. And when I say it, it's not like we're, our job is to sit down and convince somebody. But we still need to have, there still needs to be conviction in our voice when we ask people to do, like when I ask a person to, uh, to breathe calmly, right? When I t- talk to doctors of British Columbia about this, the, you know, this breathing technique, and they're like, really? You know, patients are coming into us with back pain. <clears throat> I'm telling them to do this breathing technique, and they're saying, really? I got a back problem, doc. Like, <clears throat> don't you get this? And so what we really need to do was to get the doctors to practice and by, pra- by practicing the breathing technique, they were able to uh, see the effect of it. And then when they're providing to, to the patient that they're working with, there is more conviction because they, they realize um, more of the power of this. Uh, and just on breathing, the one thing that's so fascinating is clinical experience says that most people, when we ask them to start breathing techniques when pain is persisting, most people will have that really like, you know, <clears throat> I'm already breathing um, or, or something like this and may not, not understand why. And some, you know, we can explain why. Uh, but at the other end of care, when people have, have found ways to move forward, found ways to engage and do these things, it's one of the most common thing that, that people say, you know, of all of the things you asked me to do, that's, that's the thing that seems to have had the most influence across everything you know there may be other things that we've done that have been really really important but this one is seems to be really really important for everything to work well yeah i get that from my i've been getting that recently from my clients as as well and and it's interesting that you bring up the facial features um the eyes the the voice right because those are uh, we are looking for those cues for safety, and it's well. Stephen Porges calls it neuroception, right? So it's happening not under our conscious control, and I think it's important for us to experience those things to be able to share that because that conviction, that that excitement, that like, okay, you know, I've experienced this myself. You know, you could too. It is going to. I, I feel like it has a different energy to it that there are cues that we are giving somebody that they're receiving that sense of say, again, that co-regulation uh, piece. And um, the, the interesting thing that you bring up about breath, as I was reading this, I was like, huh, somebody really had it figured out when they came up with the, um, right. Like they must, they just didn't have the science to talk about why that was so effective. And, you know, we talk about it in labor, right. Bring down the voice, bring down the frequency, um, or lift up the frequency. It it was just really, really fascinating. And like I said, now I'm all like really excited about reading more about, you know, polyvagal theory and, and just, trying to understand again, the physiology perspective. And I guess my question to you, um, you know, considering this biopsychosocial model, you know, you, you spoke about manual therapy and it, uh, affecting a change. Um, again, there seems to be this like tug in the physiotherapy realm about where does manual therapy fit in? Where do these different modalities that we use, where does that fit into this building self-efficacy? So I, I wonder if you could speak to, you know, how do you um, explain to somebody the change from a manual therapy perspective that doesn't 
lead to dependency, but it still gives them that self-efficacy piece. Right. <clears throat> Great question. Um, I just have to say before I get to answering that is that you know, the, the, we talked about the, at the beginning about the importance of being able to look at pain from different perspectives. We also need to look at pain care and pain management from different points of view. Um, and, you know, midwives have, are an area that we, you know, sorry, midwives are an area. The area of midwifery is something that uh, we have pretty much ignored in the complex pain area. And, and we need to get and listen to everybody who works in different areas to come up with new stuff and share. Um, but in terms of, um, oh, you know, I actually lost, oh, manual therapy, right? I lost my train of thought there for a second. So uh, I, I think what you said is so true is that we need to start with the idea that there is a risk of dependency. So which I think we need to step back to the logic of this. I've been injured and I tried to get better. I did my own self-care and I didn't get better. So I came to an expert looking for care and, um, and still I'm not getting better like people normally do. Um, and so you sort of get to that point of thinking, all right, this isn't something that the logic is that I need some sort of expertise provided to me, right? Something done to me. Right? I think we need to recognize that that's where most people are coming from is I already tried and I didn't get better. Um, and so part of our job around education is to give people ideas of maybe some other approaches they could, they could do. But so the person starting with this idea of, you know, I need some expert care. And so there is the risk that the person could become dependent on that. Um, and I would say to the physical therapist and other clinicians listening to consider if the person in front of you is giving you a story that they've always uh, had an internal locus of control, their life has been one of, I, you know, I do things, I control life. It's not fate. Like everything hasn't just happened to me. I have some influence over my life. The likelihood of this person moving towards being fully dependent on you is far slimmer, not impossible, but far slimmer. If the person is telling you that they really have never taken control of things in life, then the, the, you know, that's a, a bit of a clue as to be take more care here. Um, I recently uh, read someone, um, someone in the pain world writing that they had done a review and said they, they couldn't find any evidence that um, evidence of patients with ongoing pain becoming dependent on physiotherapy, manual therapy. So there seems to be a lack of evidence of that, which doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. It's just there's no evidence around it, which we need to keep in mind as well. Um, but there's still this balance, right? We need to make sure that the person realizes there are things that I can do and there are things that you can do. And, and that's where we need our language and our approach needs to frame that from day one. So I would say to anyone who's a manual therapist uh, is, you know that some of the people you work with are going to, no matter how great you are, some people are going to move into that persistent pain or they already are when they walk in the door. So if if this is the case, why not um, have language and an approach that integrates the idea that yes, the body's important and the nervous system is important or physiology is important right from the beginning. That would be the, the place to start. But then once you're there, um, the language that I think really works is to say to the person, right, so we're gonna try this, this manual therapy technique. And uh, what I'm hoping is that it will actually decrease your pain some or make it easier for you to move. So, and then you're going to do more movement because when you do, when you do the more movement, that's when you'll really be able to calm the nervous system down. And that's when you'll really be able to get uh, the tissue to start to get healthier again. Uh, 
And so the, the frame is that this is a boost to help you be able to do the thing that would help you get better, right? In the person's mind, the treatment that's required is the, the treatment that will make them better is what you do. So we need to frame it as this is to help you to be able to do the thing that is the best thing to help you get better at this point. Um, and of course, we need to have the conviction that that's true. Um, and uh, there's lots of things that can get in, in the way of that. Um, just to reinforce this idea, one of the things we were doing with the doctors of British Columbia was talking to them about when they had somebody with ongoing pain and they were giving them a prescription for a medication that we asked them to write up the prescription and, and reach the note towards the patient, but don't let them have it yet. Say, this is to help you move better. And if you're not moving better by next week, we're going to change this or we're going to get you to see a physical therapist who will help you with the movement piece. And so it's the same idea is that this isn't the treatment. This is to help you to be able to do the treatment. And, um, which unfortunately led some of them to start talking about them as movement pills, which I think is, is an oversimplification that sort of loses the, the complexity of what we're doing here. But it's the right idea, right? Is the reason to, to get the manual therapy is to allow the person to move more. Because if a person, sorry, can either move more, move with more ease, or live with more ease. Because if you can do one of those two things, then you'll be able to do the things with yourself that will help you get better best. Yeah, it provides an environment and an experience that gives them hope that things can get better. And I talk, you know, I sometimes mention that to clients as well, because they'll be like, you know, my doctor gave me this to take, well, you know, do I take it? Or I, you know, obviously follow what your doctor says, but, I, you know, I explain to them that this is, this is just to, as you said, the manual therapy, the medications, the are stepping stones for you to actually get to the thing that is going to help you rehabilitate that's going to create, create the change. Um, so not that medications are bad, right? No, maybe they're not good as a long-term strategy because that's not the treatment. That, that's just like the thing that's going to help you do the treatment that you, need to, that you need to do. And I think that's maybe that belief system that the pain medication or the manual therapy is going to just, it's literally going to cure everything. I, and I think that's where some of the disappointment ends, where I think as PTs, you know, helping to frame our language to say, these things here are stepping stones to allow you to do what needs to be done for your tissue to heal. And we'll use it for, you know, we'll use it as needed. It doesn't have to be all the time. Um, and, do you, and so on that point, I was curious, you know, do you have any advice for PTs? How, to, how, how can we better foster hope for individuals with persisting pain? Hmm. I think it really goes back to the experience part is that uh, we can better foster hope uh, when we provide the person with an experience that this is um, changeable, that, that the person has some efficacy. Um, or maybe at the beginning, the very most important thing to do is get your hands on the person and show the person that the pain is changeable. Um, you know, we will run, run into people who have that sense that it really is not changeable. And we can talk to people about how pain is changeable. We can give the person a mindfulness technique where they can experience that the pain changes all the time in the first place. But sometimes what you really just need to do is just do a profound thing that shows the person that the pain is changeable and understand that that is your goal, right? My goal here and now is not to fix them with this, it's to realize that the, the experience that pain can be changed 
is really, really important. It, and we can sort of take that back to, um, it seems that some people who are in uh, rear end or car crashes who have neck pain um, and have intense pain <clears throat> initially, but they're, they don't see any injury, right? And, and, you know, they do an x-ray, they don't see any injury. Sometimes those individuals are sent home with no pain control. Like they're not given anything for their pain. And so this is, this is like sort of like nastiness, an unintentional nastiness, right? Because the, uh, if, if, you ex if you experience um, pain that can't be changed, right? You can just imagine what's going to go on in the mind and the breath and everything is just going to get wound up, right? The evidence of safety is going to go away. Um, and so we, there's, there seems to be uh, a need in early injury to have an experience that this pain can be changed to decrease the likelihood of, a, uh, of the nervous systems or physiology getting wound up afterwards. So it's, it's fascinating. Uncontrolled pain and unexplained pain seem to be two of the really, really big issues um, that, that uh, drive the, the system to get uh, much more sensitive and louder than normal. Well, it's the, the client wants to be heard and they want to be believed. Right. Um, so, so that's probably a major thing that, uh, you know, on top of the pain, not being managed, right. It's the, I don't believe you it's in your head. Right. You know, all of those sort of things that we've heard clients come and say to us that, you know, mm -hmm. does wind up that sense of, you know, I'm not safe and nobody believes me. Is it just me? Am I going crazy? Right. And so it gets people oh. in all kinds of neurological, physiological, you know, upheaval. Right. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I want to, I want to ask, you know, we, I can, I am certain we could go on for a very long time, but uh, you know, I want to be respectful of everybody's time. So I want to, I'll finish or we'll kind of close off um, the, this podcast by, I want to just kind of talk maybe briefly a little bit about yoga practice in pain science, because you wrote a book or you co-authored a book. Um, I was hoping you could maybe um, just talk about what the book is about and what you hope people, whether individuals who are in pain or uh, practitioners, what do you hope people get from your book? Right. Um, so Yoga and Science in Pain Care, been out for about a year. It was written as a textbook for health professionals or um, yoga teachers, yoga therapists, more the yoga therapy side than the yoga teacher side, but it, it works for both. Um, and so what we did was, um, so Shelly Prosco, Marty Sullivan, and I, um, we each wrote a couple chapters and then we found other experts in the yoga therapy, uh, healthcare, uh, integration side to write chapters about uh, different, about different aspects of pain. You know, we, we talked about the research around it. we talked about the, the, uh, addiction. We talked about mental health issues in amongst all the other, uh, aspects of pain. So the idea of the textbook really was to provide some foundational understanding of pain and how yoga could be provided as a, um, as a therapeutic modality. And as a therapeutic modality that could be integrated within the medical system or that could be provided almost like in a uh, parallel path. So like those individuals we were talking about who aren't getting better with our, our typical intervention, is it's possible that adding in yoga or yoga therapy could be exactly what this person needs because it does provide, yoga and yoga therapy provide a lot of the biopsychosocial things, right, without having to go to the expensive healthcare people for it. 
And so, you know, maybe a person could, could move into that path and that would help them move forward. Um, so, you know, essentially increase the evidence of safety. We, we could say that pretty much everything, that, I know that's a, too much of a generalization, but there's so much within yoga that's about increasing the evidence of safety. You know, the, the breath work, the self-study work, the connection to love, the uh, connection to self and community, all these things are so important. Anyway, um, so the textbook was to maybe consider that as a path, but also to say that when people are struggling, um, sometimes giving that person an embodied practice um, of getting people to do yoga or yoga therapy, the things that we do within it are so similar to the kinds of things that we do within a you know, complex multidisciplinary pain management setting. There are differences, obviously, between the two, but there's so many pieces that that match up or the person in one would say, yeah, this feels similar. Um, so we wanted to get people to consider that. And uh, just one of the things I'll say about the textbook is um, through a company called Embodia right now, we're actually doing a, uh, we're, we're doing a book club webinar series. So every month we, we've started with the first with Joletta Belton, who's a, a patient advocate, person in pain, but every month in the second Wednesday of every month, we're doing a, um, an interview and presentation by each chapter writer. And so if you saw the book and you saw one of the chapters that you really wanted to hear this author more, the author will be speaking about 45 minutes, providing some clinical tidbits or a case study. And then you get to ask them the questions that you wanted to ask after you read their chapter. Amazing. Amazing. So many resources um, out there available. And I'll ask about one more, um, which is, your pain bc youtube um because i was kind of scouring through i see you have some movement practices there um could you speak a little bit to what you hope like is are the movement practices for individuals in pain is it for practitioners you know and and again what do you hope that people get out of those uh resources so for those who don't know painbc.ca you can go there painbc is a uh an amazing nonprofit that's trying to change uh, pre-licensure education, post-licensure education, um, the Ministry of Health, uh, patient support groups, everything about pain. Um, and so when the pandemic came and there was the, the shutdown, um, they approached me and some other people to see if we would actually provide uh, online gentle movement and relaxation. So anyone who understands yoga will see there's some yoga bits to it, but some of the yoga parts were, were removed so that it would be more inclusive. Um, and so we, there are 37, 40 to 50 minute long uh, gentle movement and relaxation practices. If you just went to YouTube and put in Pain BC, you'll, you'll see them all there. They're free, totally open access. I think there's 25 uh, that I did of the 37. Um, and so in terms of how do you use those, if you're a person in pain, give them a try, you'll probably notice that the movement in a lot of these things is way less than the movement that you thought you might will actually do, um, which is one of the things that a lot of the feedback people have is like, I had no idea I could move so gently and that that gentle movement would actually give me some benefit in my pain and range of motion. Um, it also is a really great resource for people who are trying to integrate um, yoga practices or contemplative practices into their movement or their exercise instruction. So you can hear this language and, and within it, you hear a lot of the, um, am I safe? Will I be okay later? Can I calm my breath, calm my body, monitor the pain stuff is all in there um, and lots of other good stuff. So 
if you're a person paying and you need a movement practice that might be really gentle and work, it's a place to go. Uh, advice has always got to be the first thing you need to do is talk to a healthcare professional and make sure movement is the right thing for you to do because you know on screen we can't do that for you so you need to keep yourself safe um, and then uh, for practitioners go there you can hear the language because the language is something you often need to hear a lot and actually the one thing to say for practitioners uh, there is no intention that everybody in ongoing pain needs to stay at this level of movement this is uh, a way in and that once we get people starting to move, then we can move people into uh, more movement down the, down the road. I think yeah. The questions you asked. Wonderful. If people want to find you, follow you, stay up to date with your work, you know, where are some th- places they can go? Where can you be found in the intersphere <laughs> of the internet? I think if you look for pain care, you, like the letter U. Uh, paincareu.com that's my website uh, that's probably the best place and if you want to see what we're doing we put out a web uh, newsletter about once a month um, as to what what we are up to um, and if anyone happens to be a yoga teacher and you're really interested in this stuff we actually are November 1st we're launching a brand new program called pain care aware um, and it's a way to uh, learn more about for yoga teachers to learn more about pain and then to uh, teach them about the, the language and your communication to be able to bring this into a yoga class. Whereas the pink air yoga, if you see pink air yoga that we created was much more about therapeutic one-on-one interactions. This is uh, a little bit like the uh, trauma informed yoga. Um, within trauma informed yoga, we didn't change the, the yoga very much. What we did was we changed our approach and we changed our language and so uh, we sort of had an epiphany about a year and a half ago. It was like, we should really do this around pain as well uh, because there's a lot of misconceptions about pain in the yoga teaching world that inadvertently create fear in people. And uh, so, uh, yeah, anyway, that'll be launched November 1st, Pain Care Aware. Amazing. Um, yes, we'll try to get the links um put in the show notes for people to easily access that information. Neil, this has been like super amazing. I'm very excited to take one of your courses uh, coming up in November, uh, you know, kind of embedded, like embodying that pain science. I think, you know, that's an area that I want to get better at. So I'm really looking forward to spending some time with you doing that. Um, and who knows, maybe in the future we'll have another discussion because I feel like I could just, I just want to listen to you all day long. So, um, so thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to do this with me. You're so welcome. It's always a pleasure to share things, you know, especially the stuff we learn from people in pain. It teaches so much. Exactly. I've, I've learned so much and, and I'm already indebted, you know, just from simple conversations with you. I also want to thank all of our listeners for joining in. Make sure you're subscribed and we would love to hear your comments and your reviews on our page. Um, And of course, if you know some practitioners who would benefit or yoga teachers that you think would like to hear more, make sure you uh, tag them in across our socials. And I'm going to say bye for now. Thank you for listening to Living a Better Life podcast. Make sure to subscribe to our show to stay up to date with our latest and greatest episodes. We would also love to hear your comments, suggestions, and reviews. Thanks again. Until the next episode. Bye for now.